Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, the science show that is more entertaining, more intelligent, more relevant and better looking in speedos than anything you'll see in the Australian election campaign. My name's Mark West and this week we're talking powerful LEDs and small furry creatures that will grow into horses and that maybe we'll eat. But first up, rare earths are used in hybrid cars, computers, fluorescent lights and many other icons of modern life. Most of the world's supply has come from China, but now an Australian company is mining a large deposit in Western Australia. Bridget Mullane spoke to Dr Matthew James of Linus Corporation about how the structure of these minerals makes them so useful and the long road from mine to the manufacturing plant. What are rare earths and what makes them distinctive? Rare earths are a series of elements in the periodic table, also known as the lanthanide elements, so they are lanthanum, cerium, neodymium, praseodymium, and there are 14 different elements uh, altogether. What makes them distinctive is they have unique chemical properties. The electrons uh, on the outside of the shell are full, but the internal electrons are where they have spaces. They're unique in the periodic table for that, and that gives them very interesting magnetic, catalytic, optical properties, which you can't find in other elements on the periodic table. Can you tell me, for example, how would they be used in a hybrid electric car? Sure, there are two applications in the hybrid electric car. The first one is rare earths create the world's strongest magnets, neodymium rare earth magnets, and they're used in the electrical generator of the car, or also the electric motor of the hybrid vehicle. So that turns electrical power stored in the battery into actual physical power that turns the wheels from the electric motor. When you put your foot on a brake in a hybrid vehicle, that motor turns into a generator and recharges the battery. The battery itself is also another application that contains rare earths. A nickel metal hydride battery, the metal hydride component of that, is actually an alloy of different rare earths. How is a rare earth magnet different from an ordinary magnet we might have on our fridge? It's basically the magnetic strength. The rare earth magnet in the same size magnet that you have on your fridge is probably about uh, 50 times more powerful. So if you have a magnet on your fridge, a rare earth magnet, you wouldn't be able to pull it off your fridge. That would be the problem. They are very, very strong magnets. They're the strongest magnetic material in the world. But that allows the power to be harnessed in an electric motor, which means you have a smaller electric motor for the same power, or for the same size motor, you have a much more powerful electric motor. Is there a danger that these strong magnets would start attracting junk around the car or anything like that? No, the magnetic fields drop off exponentially away from the magnet and the magnet is designed to focus its energy where it's required in the copper coils. What are some other common things that now incorporate rare earth items? Every computer has a hard disk drive. That hard disk drive has two rare earth magnets one to make the disk spin, the other that controls the arm that reads and writes data on that disk. And that has allowed the miniaturization of these hard disk drives. The phosphors behind the computer screen, the, the material that create the color and light, a combination of rare earths. Europium creates the color red, 
and terbium creates a colour green, and there are no substitutes for those, so no rare earth black and white world. Rare earths are used in every ore refinery in the world to help crack the crude oil into its different components. You can still crack the oil without rare earths, but the yield of the oil refinery will drop by about 7%. That's like taking the US oil production out of the system today. That would have a big impact on, on oil prices. Now, can we look at the production? What form is the rare earth ore, if it's called ore, in your mines in, in Western Australia? Our mine in Western Australia is an old volcano. It's 2 billion years old. And over the last 2 billion years, it's been weathered and concentrated down 1.8 kilometers into a super, what we call a supergene zone, which is 30 to 50 meters thick. It's a rare earth phosphate mineral, um, and it's just that act of nature which has concentrated it that makes it economical to mine. Now, what do you actually do with it when you get it out? Do you crush it? Do you smelt it? What kind of processing do you do? There are a number of steps. So we first of all, we mine it, and then we do crush it and grind it down to liberate the very fine grains of rare earths. We then collect those fine grains in a process called flotation, which is basically mixing it with a soap-type material. The rare earths actually attach to this special soap, float to the surface when we pump air bubbles through it, then we skim off the air, the air bubbles, which has that higher concentration of rare earths. That's what we call our concentration process to produce a concentrate. Once we take the, have the concentrate, we then take it to our plant we're building in Malaysia, where we hit it with sulfuric acid at relatively high temperatures, and that breaks down the minerals and releases the, the rare earths from the mineral structure. Once we've done that, we then water leach it, and the rare earths go into, into the solution. And we now have a rare earth sulfate solution, but it contains all of those different rare earths, but we've separated the rare earths from the rest of the material. We then employ a technique known as solvent extraction, and solvent extraction allows us to separate the individual rare earths from one another. And finally, we can produce a single rare earth, which we precipitate and then calcine to produce a single rare earth oxide, for example. Now, you've got a plant in Malaysia. Why would you do it there instead of here? Malaysia is where we take the concentrate and process the concentrate. Why do we do it in Malaysia? Our plant uses quite a lot of water, natural gas, and chemical reagents. And water in Western Australia is scarce. In Malaysia, it's plentiful. Uh, also, the chemical reagents we require, we can find locally in the industrial estate in Malaysia, and we can pipe those reagents through the fence to our plant. Uh, so it's very good from a sourcing uh, reagents and the same with natural gas off the east coast of Malaysia petronas oil and gas fields come on sh on short on the east coast of Malaysia we can access that natural gas also because of that large chemical industry on the east coast of Malaysia we can get a lot of good uh, technical uh, services and support and chemical engineers so it's a very good location for us what about the environment does your processing have any adverse environmental effects in either place and, and what can you do about that any mining operation obviously has an environmental impact at the pit itself where you're making a hole. Uh, we are careful to ensure we retain what we call the topsoil, which has all the seeds from the plant, so we can rehabilitate the area. And we've started rehabilitation in some area at the mine, so we minimise our environmental impact in that way. And then with the chemical processing, as with any chemical processing facility, you have to be uh, careful and observe proper procedures to minimize any environmental impact. 
So we have a very good, uh, what we call waste gas system that cleans the gases before they're released to the atmosphere. We have what will be the largest industrial wastewater plant on the east coast of Malaysia. Again, to ensure that, that any water we release is properly treated and cleaned and meets the environmental standards before we release that water. What are the possibilities for recycling from old equipment? Actually, during the manufacturing process of magnets, for example, they have shavings of magnets. They make sure they capture those shavings, and whereas previously they were discarded, now they are being recycled. So the rare earth industry is looking at different ways to ensure the manufacturing processes capture any spare or waste material, and they're putting in place uh, programs to recycle end-use products and especially where they're used in large quantities, like the automobile. One of the problems with recycling rare earths is they tend to be used in very small quantities in each application. So recycling of that very small quantity is difficult. That was Bridget Mullane speaking to Dr Matthew James. And as a bit of disclosure, Bridget recently acquired shares in Linus Corporation Limited. We now present the first instalment in our series on the evolution and domestication of the horse. Lachlan Watmore would like to start from the very beginning. My dad was an equine vet, so I never had a very high opinion of horses. They scared me when I was little because they were so big and unimpressed me when I was older because they were so stupid. Finally, when I was about 21, a dressage-trained gelding, if you please, injured me by suddenly stopping or refusing during a brisk canter, causing me to rapidly slide forward in the saddle and have my testicles collected by the pommel. I literally couldn't walk for an hour, and I just hope it made the horse feel better about being a gelding. The nutless bastard. Horses, of course, have been an enormous influence on the development of the human community. They've dragged ploughs through fields, dray carts to market, carriages to coronations, and, of course carried men into battle. Hold the line! Stay with me! If you find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! <laughs> Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Before I was born, Mum and Dad lived in Ireland for a few years amongst very horsey people who lived and breathed the equestrian life. And I can just imagine some drunken trainer or groom putting his arm around Dad's shoulders and saying, Lee me, lad, on the seventh day he created the horse. Now, we at Diffusion are anything but creationist. However, if you take a less literal approach to Genesis and stretch that day into 52 million years, then we've got a timeline. And if you want to know how an animal evolved, you couldn't pick a better species than Equus cabalus, the modern horse. It is easily one of the best, if not the best animal, to have its evolution described in detail, thanks to a beautifully detailed fossil record that makes intelligent design proponents quake with fear. For several generations now, horse evolution has been the classic example of the process in many, many textbooks. 52 million years ago, in North America an animal evolved that was about the size of a fox. It only looked vaguely horse-like, but according to current theory, it was the great-granddaddy of not just the modern horse and its offshoots like zebras and donkeys, but also of a whole family bush of now extinct equine species. This animal was initially called Eohippus, which means dawn horse, but upon further investigation was renamed Hyracotherium, which means hyrax-like beast. 
Hyracotherium fossils show some equid characteristics, most noticeably in the length of its legs, which show the beginnings of an animal built for speed. In particular, the animal ran on its toes, which possessed not claws but small proto-hooves. The feet were padded like a dog, with four toes touching the ground in the forelegs and three toes touching in the hind legs. Its face was elongated like a modern horse, but not quite as long, and the same can be said for its neck. It didn't grow taller than 50 centimetres and had a very small brain, giving my father ammunition to declare that horses are the stupidest creatures the good Lord made. I'll come back to equine intelligence later on in this series because I've probably been a bit harsh on the subject. Hyracotherium hung around for about 20 million years with little modification, apart from its teeth. Initially, Hyracotherium dentition reflected the diet of a frugivore, or fruit eater, which occasionally browsed on foliage. However, as the Great Plains of North America began to develop into grassland, the 44 teeth of the animal, 12 incisors, 4 canines, 16 premolars and 12 molars, changed to accommodate a more browsing diet. In particular, the molars got better at grinding tough grasses. Sure enough, the next step in horse evolution reflected this change in diet. Only two million years after the emergence of Hyracotherium, a grass-eating equine called Orohippus arose. It was about the size of its ancestor, but slimmer, with a more elongated head and longer hind limbs. Its dentition certainly enabled greater grinding of tough food. Orohippus was only one of several genera to arise from Hyracotherium, underlining the fact that the so-called ladder of creation model, in this case a straight, undeviating line from proto-horse to modern horse, is dead and buried. However, straight lines in ancestry can be drawn through the branches of a family bush, and Orohippus is the turn we must follow to reach modern horses. In the next instalment, I'm going to look at the line that led to the modern equus, a very long line with many intermediate forms, extinct cousins, and big, big changes in size and shape. And that's just horses before people got their hands on them and began to breed them. Stay tuned. That was Lachlan Watmore on the early evolution of the horse. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com and www.diffusionradio.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, here's Ian talking about electron microscopes. What can you make with microscopes so precise that they let you see down to just a few atoms across? How can you safely light the world while saving power? Matthew Phillips is Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and the Director of the Microstructural Analysis Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's exploring the properties of nanowires and how to make very low-powered light sources to save more than 50% of the cost and environmental impact of lighting. So, Matthew, you're looking at very small things. What's your current project? One of our current interests is to explore the uh, properties of nanowires. And uh, I guess I should start by saying exactly what a nanowire is. A nanowire is a a one-dimensional structure which normally has a width that's of the order or less than 100 nanometers or less, and a nanometer is a millionth of a millimeter, and it has an aspect ratio or length to diameter ratio that's 10 times that. So, for example, if it's 10 nanometers in diameter, it needs to be at least 100 nanometers long and, and so on. 
Uh, our current group, you can make them out of a whole range of the traditional semiconductors, but uh, most of our research effort is focused on growing and characterizing binary oxide nanowires. So these include materials like zinc oxide, tin oxide, indium oxide, gallium oxide, titanium oxide, and silicon dioxide and we're expanding all the time. So we have all the fabrication facilities uh, for growing these uh, structures as well as a very comprehensive array of electron microscopes and also uh, scanning probe microscopes that allow us to measure and characterise and image both the particles themselves and also uh, measure their physical properties. Do you make these nanowires in the electron microscopes? We can, and in fact, that's the focus of a recent ARC a grant that was awarded to me and my group. One of the main objectives of that program is to try and understand the mechanism uh, that are involved in, in the actual growth of these particles. Uh, how, how they're grown at the moment, and it's one of the advantages of these sorts of structures, is that what we do is we decorate the surface of a material with gold nanodots, and then we inject the appropriate binary oxide as a vapour. So, for example, what we would do is we would uh, mix some zinc oxide powder, for example, with carbon and heat this up, and this then reduces the zinc oxide powder to uh, zinc, metallic zinc vapour, and also zinc oxide molecules, and then they diffuse down and interact only with the gold dot that's sitting on the surface. And then what happens is a zinc oxide nanowire grows from the underneath of the little gold dot. The advantage of this, of course, is that the gold dot, the diameter determines the diameter of the nanowire itself, and the position of the gold dot determines the location of the actual nanowire. So we can use this strategically in that we can use other conventional lithography techniques where we can then specifically place these gold dots in either periodic arrays or in arrays where we exactly or we want to define where the dot grows. So we use the combination of these two techniques of electron beam lithography to determine the exact position of the gold dots. And then the, the technique I just described a little earlier with the vapor is known as a vapor liquid solid uh, technique of growing the nanowires. Although this is a well-used process, it's poorly understood at best. And what we're trying to do uh, is to actually reproduce this little growth control system within the electron microscope and to actually study the growth of these wires in real time, in situ. So to be able to go to very high magnification, watch the growth, so we can actually understand the process better. So how is this actual process occurring? Why, for example, when the growth occurs, the gold dot ends up at the top of the, the nanowire. So the growth is between the, the underlying material, what's known as a substrate, and the wire, and the, sorry, the gold dot. And so what, what is the actual the role? What, what effect do all the various growth parameters have on the growth, the speed, the quality of the material? And once it's grown, then we can, in fact, without changing any of the conditions, is that we can do the analysis directly. So we can use the electron beam to inject electrons to create light or to create uh, or to form an image or to look at the electrical conductivity. So we can do all of these uh, standard characterization tools without breaking vacuum of the, the electron microscope. And why do you use gold for the dots? 
it seems to provide us with the the very best, well, the best result. We've tried other materials as catalysts, but gold seems to be the best material to use so far. But part of this project will be to look at other possible catalyst metal materials and see if we get any enhancement in the growth or any unexpected uh, growth phenomena. So what might be some of the applications for nanowires? Ah, good question. Well, one of the nice things about these one-dimensional structures is that they conduct electricity very well. And so there's lots of applications in very low dimensional or very small interconnects on uh, semiconductor devices. One of the other applications is if I have a complete surface that's covered with these nanodot forests, if you like, then that dramatically increases the effective surface area. So this has tremendous application in sensor technologies where it's the interaction of, say, a type of gas or drug or uh, with the surface that changes, say, the electrical properties of that surface. Then because of the very high surface area that's created by this uh, forest of nanowires, we can then significantly improve the sensitivity of the sensor detection So that's one of our key interests is in the optical properties, how they emit light. And then the light is, because this is like a little mini waveguide, the the light's directed down the long axis of the wire. So we can use this potentially for new areas of photonics where integrating the interaction of light with electrons and conventional uh, circuits that exploit the properties of electrons. So conventional electronics and then integrating it with photonics. So you get really fast computer switching? Yeah, that's one of the uh, potential applications. With the forest of nanowires you're describing, will that also be good for soaking up solar energy? Uh, yes, potentially. There are some areas to explore for novel photo... This what you're describing is photovoltaic, so converting sunlight into electrical energy. And they do, again, from the large surface area... And also that these materials are what is known as, or collectively as, wide band gap materials. Conventional electronics like silicon and so on absorb light from the infrared and above. These interact more with the ultraviolet light, so the high energy part of the spectrum. There are certain ways that we may be able to exploit this for some novel light harvesting applications. And are there applications for green, low-powered lighting from this? Yes, in the future. Uh, We also have a a large program within my laboratory looking at what's known as solid-state lighting. This is as opposed to traditional lights, which are incandescent lights, where we heat a small tungsten filament to a very high temperature to emit light. Although this technology has been around for well over 100 years, the disadvantage of this is is that 90% of the energy is lost in heat. And so it's a very inefficient process. And the materials that I was describing just previously, what known as wide band gap materials, one of the nice things about these is, is that we can make electronic devices out of this material that emit light very efficiently. So when we apply an electric current to this device, which is known as a diode or light emitting diode, we can convert the electrical energy into light energy very, very efficiently, more so that nearly all of the energy is converted from electrical energy to light energy. So these are very, very efficient devices. They're also very bright, and now they're already competing with all of the other conventional technologies. So in one sense, they they use significantly less power for the amount of light they produce. 
But in addition to this, these devices have a very long lifetime that they can actually last of the order of 10 years, where a conventional light bulb will last the order of a few months. So uh, this type of technology is going to have a dramatic impact, what's known as solid state lighting, on our day-to-day life. And it's already, it's a silent revolution. If you go and poke your head out, uh, you'll notice that all our traffic lights are now not a single filament uh, emission source anymore. They're actually an array of probably uh, 150 little dots. Each one of those dots is a light-emitting diode. If you have a close look at the back of most car headlights or taillights now, or indicator lights, you'll see that most of those are also light-emitting diode devices. And again, it's because they use significantly less power and also uh, have such a long lifetime. To give you some uh, idea, So even with 150 diodes in a traffic light signal, it still uses one-third less power than a conventional bulb. And also, as I said before, it needs only to be replaced every 10 years. So this is going to have a dramatic effect. We've probably also seen this technology slowly emerging is just in in conventional light bulbs for replacement of light bulbs in flashlights and also in headlights on push bikes and little strap onto your head light sources. This will slowly infiltrate into all of our domestic lighting. And in fact, it's still predicted by 2020 in the United States that nearly all of their incandescent lighting will be replaced by some form of uh, solid state lighting. Well, to give you some other, the the impact Mm -hmm. of this is that lighting consumes something like 20% of the world's power. Solid state lighting uses at least 50% less of this energy. So this represents an immediate decrease of 10% in the total power use of the planet by just converting from incandescent lights to solid state lights. Wonderful. Mm. Matthew Phillips, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Associate Professor Matthew Phillips, Director of the Microstructural Analysis Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send us an email at diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Bridget Mullane, Ian Wolfe and Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SCR, with technical support by myself, Mark West. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I am the aforementioned Mark West. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science?
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.